Welcome to Protect, suicide prevention training podcast for healthcare professionals. I'm Manan, consultant psychiatrist, founder, and head of faculty at Progress Guide. Good day. This is Mahi, your host. We are on to episode 18. We hope you enjoyed the guest episode with Dr. Miguel DeSaches. His account of his journey from Cambridge to Saigon was fascinating. Yes, it was. Apologies for the poor sound quality at certain parts of the interview. We tried to correct the dropouts as much as possible, but the content was quite soul-stirring. Miguel used this metaphor of proactively putting one's foot through the door as a way of creating enough friction between suicidal thoughts and the person's reasons for living. And later on went on to elaborate that the foot through the door shouldn't be like a pestering salesman, but one where permission is sought in a collaborative fashion. To me, that captured all the things we say about relational safety. Absolutely loved it. I also found the conversation about expats who were trapped amidst freedom quite a fitting oxymoron. Yes, they could move about within Vietnam with freedom, but could not leave the country. So this idea that if something happened, they could just return to their homes in the West at a moment's notice was taken away. Maybe this is something we should revisit in a later episode as suicide is often described as an attempt to break out of the entrapment of life's pain. I find conceptual discussions about freedom and entrapment quite stimulating. And then there was the whole discussion about using telehealth to support a person in distress. Yes, Miguel highlighted the importance of proactively thinking things through with the person, the importance of family, as well as people on the ground who can respond. He mentioned that this was not that different to what would be needed if he was seeing someone face to face. We also had a very content-heavy guest episode with Shazi Thabi a couple of episodes back in which Shazi highlighted the challenges of supporting autistic people in suicidal distress and how those challenges can be overcome. Yes, in that episode, there were lots of practical tips that health professionals can keep in mind when supporting people who are neurodiverse. Shazi highlighted that right from first contact, there are things that could be done better, uh, things that could be done differently. For example, being aware of the level of lighting in the consultant room or the language one uses in everyday practice, asking an autistic person, how are you feeling, may draw a blank, but if we use the Gottman feeling wheel, they can clearly articulate how they are feeling. Interesting thing about the language, you had your wrist slapped for saying people with autism. Indeed, Shazi was advocating a person-first approach, which she said translate into phrases like autistic people. In mental health, we have traveled in the other direction where we will be frowned on if I use the term schizophrenia. We will say a person with schizophrenia as there is much more to a person's life than the mental illness that they're suffering from. So I've been trying to use the term like an autistic person or autistic people since that podcast recording. I must confess that I find it a bit strange. But if that's what people with autism or as we say, autistic people want us to refer to them in the sense of person first, then perhaps that is what we should be using. Shazi also talked about the direct exchange from autistic people and how the same principles of collaboration apply to them. Yes, she highlighted how the straight talking should not be seen as rudeness. 
That is how they are communicating their distress. And the distress is valid even in the absence of some of the other emotional cues that we often look for. All in all, it's a vital episode and one that you need to listen to as it is so easy to get things wrong because as Shazi put it, you may be speaking English but the other person speaks Spanish or vice versa. I certainly learned a lot during that interview. So have a listen to those two podcast episodes. You too, I believe, will learn a fair bit. Okay, so on to today's topic. We are on to the last letter of the AWARE acronym, E for experience. Yes, we are indeed. So A is for anxiety. We discussed how anxiety can get in the way of us properly exploring and its impact on decision making. We discussed the two mental spaces, rational and rationalizing. Rational is information first, decision later. And rationalizing is decision first, followed by selection of information to support the decision or action. This theme plays out in all the aware factors. We then explored W for waiting and how much waiting assessors put on certain diagnostic groups, namely personality disorder and substance misuse, and how suicidality in these groups often count for less. Also, how an acute course of illness gets more priority than chronic, although those who are chronically unwell may have lost touch with hope. And finally, how suicidality caused by modifiable social factors are often considered by healthcare staff as outside their core remit of work. And these patients end up receiving less support than those with a clear-cut biological mental illness. After W was another A, A for agenda. And we talked about how an assessment could get skewed by the agenda that the assessor perceives. This may be an agenda that the assessor perceives in the referrer or in the patient or the family. And that has quite an impact on the way the assessment progresses, the information that is collected and how we make decisions. The next letter R is for resources, whether that be beds or workload in a team and its impact on decision making. We again talked about the two mental spaces, rational and rationalizing, and how tempting it is to justify a resource-led decision as one that has been taken in the patient's best interest. Staying in the rational space does not suddenly give us more beds, but we are more aware of the risks involved as we have not rationalized them away, thus we might engage in far more stringent safety planning than if we just justified the decision which was resource-led as one which was in the patient's best interest. That was a quick run through the first four aware factors. And now to the final one, experience. Does your experience help or hinder? The aware study showed that the experience of managing a patient previously had a considerable impact on clinical decisions that were made post-assessment. Most clinicians found their prior knowledge helpful in deciding what the best course of action ought to be. However, it was also apparent that sometimes this past knowledge was used to justify jumping to conclusions and assessments were not as thorough as they ought to be. Presentations and risk are dynamic and prone to change even if it is the same patient presenting repeatedly in crisis. You cannot just apply the same plan that you had developed maybe in the presentation before. Other than that though, surely being experienced is a good thing. When a lay person selects a doctor, they are often looking for those who are experienced. 
And rightly so. Experience by and large is a good thing. The more a professional has seen in terms of breadth of presentations and depth of complexity, the more capable they are in navigating challenging scenarios and circumstances. So what is the issue? The issue arises when experience gets in the way of exploring the unique circumstances of each person's each presentation. And this is what you mean by saying assessors jumping to conclusions? Yes, and that too very early on in the assessment process. It is normal to spot similarities and patterns. That's how we comprehend the world around us. You mean the way in which a professional generalizes past experience to a current presentation? Yes, and there are four different ways in the AWARE study that we found that this happened. So, firstly, of the same patient at different time points, so taking past information, past experience of the same patient to different presentations. Secondly, of different patients, but belonging to the same diagnostic group. So you have seen someone from a particular diagnostic group, you generalize that information, that experience onto other patients who belong to that diagnostic group. Then there are different patients that belong to the same demographic. So like middle-aged men or indigenous population. So different patients, but you have seen someone of a particular demographic set and you're taking that information and applying them to all of them. And then there is the bit, you know, different patients from different groups, but you're treating them similarly because you have learned something about patients who are presenting with mental health challenges, but not that much in terms of similarity, just patients. So you are taking your overall experience and you're applying that to other patients that you are seeing. Okay, let's work our way through each of them, starting with the same patient who presents at different time points. I'm assuming this applies to groups who may repeatedly present in crisis. Yes, and they may have a well-documented acute management plan and there may be very good reasons why a clinician assessing a person who is frequently presenting to ED should stay consistent to the plan that has been agreed on. But sometimes the presentation may have changed. Someone who has been chronically suicidal may be presenting in an acute on chronic presentation, like an escalation of self-harming from their arms to their neck and face. But if one sticks too rigidly to the plan that has been devised, one may overlook this change in presentation. We talked about this in the section on waiting. Can you provide some statements from the WHERE study? Okay, so here goes. This is quote unquote. I have nursed her many times over the years. This does not appear to be any different. And believe me, once she comes into hospital, her behavior escalates and she regresses every time discharge is mentioned. Okay, so that's the quote from one of the practitioners who was interviewed after an assessment. So statements like this are not uncommon as people use their past knowledge of a person they have cared for to decide what might be the best course of action in the here and now. Many times they are correct. But there has to be a degree of cognitive flexibility so that changes in presentation are picked up in frequent presenters. Also, one needs to ask that if they are repeatedly presenting, whatever is their need is not being met. And perhaps more work needs to be done in the community to meet that need. 
or else just turning them away from the emergency department and asking them to follow the plan is setting them up to fail again and again and again. As, and they will repeatedly present as the need, whatever that might be, has not been met. Okay, let's look at the second group. Different patients, but from the same diagnostic group. So, here is a nice quote from the AWARE study that captures this generalizing sentiment. Half my time is spent in supporting people with borderline personality. I have now learned the hard way that with them, one has to stick to the boundaries and not admit. If they see you being soft, you will get sucked in. So again, it's a statement from um, an assessor. And clinicians are known to generalize their learning from one or few patients of a diagnostic group to all patients, losing the opportunity for person-centered care delivery. This sounds more like an approach or ethos of care delivery to patients of certain diagnostic groups. Yes, and here it might sound like an unhelpful way to treat all patients with borderline personality disorder in this way. But it could be something positive as well, like a practitioner feeling and believing that people with borderline personality have had a horrendous past and they should get all the kindness and compassion that there is. The point that we are making is not that whether experience is right or wrong or the approach is right or wrong, but that the experience of a diagnostic group influences the way in which we interact with the person, which then goes on to influence the clinical decisions we make. This is similar, I assume, to different patients from the same demographic population. Yes, that's correct. Very similar. But you're replacing diagnosis with demographics. So here is a quote from a clinician in their VA study. The two groups I find difficult are young men into drugs who are not willing to take any responsibility. They just frustrate me. But it is the middle-aged, middle-class, depressed, agitated men who really scare me since the suicide in the team. They always know what the right thing to say is and I find myself second-guessing. Clinicians will often stereotype a particular demographic due to past experience of things either going well or badly wrong, like in this particular clinician's case. But that is inevitable. Yes, it is. But we need to remain mindful of our beliefs. We did have a middle-aged man who took his life while being supported by the crisis team. It came completely out of the blue. In fact, the team thought that he was doing so much better and were considering his discharge. And since then, the positive risk-taking for middle-aged males took a nosedive. Now, this relates back to the anxiety, the first of the aware factors. Not that every middle-aged man is risky, but the experience of the adverse incident impacted practice and hugely influenced decision-making. And finally, experience just being generalized, irrespective of similarities or dissimilarities. Yes, yeah, so I've got a nice quote here which captures that. I have got some standard crisis plans that I can draw on for patients who fit the bill. Now, a crisis plan which might have been designed specifically for a patient might not be suitable for another. These plans need to be agreed on. They need to be agreed on with the person, the family, and to generalize them, particularly if it's the middle of the night where we haven't got those agreements in place, is actually quite dangerous. I guess having a framework that one personalizes to the needs of the person is okay, but just using the same plan in a thoughtless fashion is not helpful. Yes, this 
is often part of the tick box mindset that emerges in highly pressured environments. No one has the time to think things through at an individual level. So, for example, doing things just because they have to be done. Take the safety plan of a white middle-class male with supportive family and apply that to an indigenous female who may not have any family but have got elders to lean on. This is a good example of hitting the target but missing the point. I do want to go back to the experience of suicide, so here are some figures. 23% of counsellors have lost a client through suicide. 30% of psychologists and social workers have lost a client through suicide. 50% of psychiatrists have lost a patient through suicide. Now that is one in two psychiatrists and one in three psychologists and one in four counsellors. That is significant and perhaps one of the most traumatic things a professional has to come to terms with. For those who work in mental health, it is often said that there are two groups of professionals, those who have had a suicide and those who are going to have one. This is a very challenging thought and after losing a patient to suicide, it influences one's clinical decision making. We talked about risk-averse clinical care in Care Compass, you'd remember, where care becomes paternalistic and prescriptive. That has its own problems and has to be mindfully managed in supervision and reflective practice. That is loss in the professional context, but there will be those who have had personal experience of suicide. Does that help or hinder? Speaking from personal experience, that is quite challenging. Now, you have to understand that it is inevitable that decision-making or management styles in clinicians who have lost someone through suicide or themselves have had their battles with suicidal urges and acts will be influenced by their personal experience. Yes, there is that too. There are some who would have had their own struggles with suicidal thoughts and feelings. It does influence decision-making. To expect otherwise is unrealistic. However, one has to develop an awareness of how the experience impacts their professional work. It can be positive or negative, and it needs to be addressed in a supportive, reflective space, either with a mentor or supervisor. This is reminiscent of the discussion we had regarding attitudes to suicide. That's correct. In particular, understanding how one talks about suicide with patients how one personally relates, how much of their personal experience does one share, what actions does one take or doesn't take. You know, that can be protective both for the person being supported and the professional's practice. What do you do if there are areas of concerns? Well, they need to be actively addressed so no harm comes to patients. A professional's past might provide a sense of deep empathy for the person's present distress, you know, the person that you're supporting. However, the same past could intrude and take over, interfering with present effectiveness. If a professional's present is a daily personal struggle with suicidality, caution has to be exercised and fitness to practice procedures should be considered. Do you have any suggestions for those professionals who find it difficult to strike that balance? I think reading personal narratives and memoirs can be quite enlightening. Consider reading An Unquiet Mind, A Memoir of Moods and Madness by Kay Jameson. She's a fantastic author. And Crack Not Broken, Surviving and Thriving After a Suicide Attempt by Kevin Hines is another good read. Sounds like on the positive side, there's going to be empathy. And on the negative side, there may be over-identification. Yes. 
People with a personal experience of suicide will bring keen insight into what it feels like to walk in the shoes of a person who is suicidal. Feeling that someone really does understand their psychological pain can be quite protective. This is the foundation of relational safety. But as you pointed out, lived experience can result in over-identification, so leading to taking on a savior role with rescue fantasies. In some, this may result in boundary violations. In others, their personal experience may be so painful that they avoid talking about suicide, resulting in an unsafe situation. In short, professionals' experience of suicide, both in the person and the professional sphere, may help or hinder. Here are some facts to consider. 50% of those in mental health care know someone personally who has died from suicide. 40% of the one in two reported that the person who died was a family member. 43% have considered suicide as an option for themselves. 5% have made an actual suicide attempt. As you can tell from those numbers, this is not a rarity. So it deserves our attention. The over-identification does not just cause rescue fantasies and sometimes boundary violations. For some practitioners, they freeze and have outright impairment, limiting their ability to ask or talk about suicide. It is really important that such anxieties are picked up in supervision and discussed candidly by creating a psychologically safe space. Also, there is the need for skills building in helping professionals connect with empathy drawing on their own lived experience without making the dialogue about their own loss. These are fairly nuanced skills and it is crucial that professionals get support for them. We do a fair bit of this in the actual face-to-face and online training and we cover this in the video courses that we have got at progress.guide as well. This brings us to the end of episode 18. Last but not least, we have covered a very important aware factor today experience. Whether that be just the experience of assessing and caring for people in suicidal distress and generalizing that exposure to future patients or the professional or personal experiences of losing a patient or loved one to suicide. Remember, the show notes and images will be at the blog on www.progress.guide and you can get the Protect Suicide Prevention Guidebook from Amazon. There are a number of online video courses as well. Pause and think which group of patients you find challenging. In the recent past, which patient had kept you awake at night and why? When it comes to such patients, are there particular trigger points for you that bring out a specific response in terms of your risk-taking or decision-making? Have you lost anyone, patient or a loved one to suicide? Have you had support for that loss? Do you spend time reflecting and looking into the rearview mirror? Reflection is an essential element of progress to practice. Share your musings with us. Tweet your thoughts about experience or a lack of and tag hashtag guide progress. It helps get the word out about the podcast to more professionals. You can email your thoughts to us at admin at progress.guide with your suggestions and comments, particularly if you have questions and want us to cover certain topics in the discussion. In the next episode, we will build on the discussion regarding experience with a phenomenon called Creep Crash Crawl, as we ran out of time today. Please spread the word. You can connect with Manan on LinkedIn or follow our LinkedIn page by searching on LinkedIn for progress.guide. We are also on Twitter and YouTube. Our Twitter handle is at guideprogress. As usual, 
Please do follow the podcast. There'll be weekly episodes every Friday and share it with your colleagues. Your ratings will help get the word out. So please don't forget to rate us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or Audible or whichever channel you are listening on. Helping healthcare professionals become aware of their decision-making processes is an essential step in creating a workforce that is self-aware. Remember, together we can make a difference. Tune in next Friday and we will discuss how risk-taking in a professional who is regularly exposed to suicidality evolves over time and how it impacts their practice. Thank you for joining us today and keep spreading the word.